I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognize their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Welcome to This Song Is Yours, a music podcast where we chat to a new guest each week, talk about their life and creative endeavours, and talk to them about some of the music they love. Our show works by chatting to our guests about music, but also getting them to make you a playlist of the songs they love. You can find the link to our playlist in the show notes. I'm your host, Simon Fink, and welcome to episode 10. Our guest today is Katie Noonan. A successful solo artist and frontwoman for bands like George and Alexa, Katie released her latest studio record this year, entitled The Sweetest Taboo. In today's episode, Katie and I talk about the ever-changing landscape of the music industry, the value that music holds, and the fine work of bands like Elbow and Portishead. Here we go. Our guest today is an ARIA award-winning solo artist, classically trained musician, and frontwoman for bands like George and Elixir. Her 20th studio record, entitled The Sweetest Taboo, is out now. Please welcome to This Song Is Yours, Katie Noonan. Hi, Katie. G'day, Simon. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you today? I'm good, yeah. I'm um, glad that it's summer and that we're all starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel of this big and traumatic year, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it has been um, a very interesting year, to say the least. (laughs) Yeah. Ultimately, I think it's been a gift for us all, really. I think, well, for me anyway, and for a lot of my friends, it's given us a chance to reevaluate and think about what's actually important. And for me, it's been a gift because I've been home most of the year, which hasn't happened in my life really since I, well, for a very long time. So, um, certainly since I had children. So it's been great to be able to be home with my kids more. We've been talking to a lot of artists and where they found themselves during COVID in terms of um, whether they were more creative due to time or whether there was a stress to create and, and too much pressure to uh, to be creative. Um, to be honest, the stress, I'm the, so I'm the sole financial provider for my family or the main financial provider. So the extraordinary stress of 100% of income disappearing, um, you know, before my eyes. Uh, so amazingly, I just finished four years at a job being the artistic director of a large music festival, which was awesome. Very, very stressful, intense. And so this year was my year to return to being a live artist. (laughs) It was like the worst possible year I could pick for that. So, yeah, and so that was, I was three dates into like I think a 25-date national tour. I had a residency in France. I had a 
curatorial job in Finland. I had all this stuff lined up for the year that was quite exciting. It was like, wow, I get to return to being a full-time artist again. Oh, that's scary, you know, no solid income, but hopefully, you know, things will fall into place. And the tour that I did was basically sold out and so that was feeling really good and then, yeah, then, you know, the world stopped and, the trauma of that was actually so profound that the stress of just suddenly my whole life just changing and, you know, I was madly applying for every possible arts grant that you could and applying for jobs and just basically, you know, really what my entire livelihood relies on gatherings of people, which was illegal. So, yeah, we it was so traumatic that I really didn't write much music. I have been more recently, though, which is great, um, and this year certainly provided plenty of inspiration <laughs> for songwriting. <laughs> so um, I've actually just finished, I think I've just finished writing my next record. So, um, yeah, so I'm feeling really good at the moment, but it's a tricky, it's been a tricky year, to be honest, for most of this year, I've just been so caught in the tailspin of stress of just homeschooling children for 17 weeks and, you know, dealing with all the maelstrom of life um, that, yeah, my creative time was basically, yeah, wasn't really there until fairly recently, yeah. That's that's very fair. I think that, um, yeah, that obviously, as you said, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes, so very fair that it might have taken a backseat for a little bit. Yeah. I did see on your Instagram that you had put that you'd finished um, uh, writing your new record and yep. going back and doing a bit of research, it would be your 21st record to come out? Correct. correct. 21st studio record. Like I've put out lots of EP, other things as well, but that my 21st studio album, yeah, which is kind of bonkers. That was the thing, 21 studio records just under your name, um, a few with George, a few with Elixir. Yeah. Firstly, are you Australia's hardest uh, working front woman? But also, where do you think the drive comes from to to continually be creating this art and, and releasing it? Um, well, I do have a voracious appetite for music, and music is a limitless thing. It has no boundaries. So, and I've never been interested in um, uh, limiting myself to a particular box or a particular genre um you know I started studying opera and then I went and did a jazz degree and somewhere in there I started my band George and a year later Elixir so George started in 1996 and Elixir in 1997 and George even though we we stopped in 2000 our last gig was January 2005 so oh my god that was 15 years ago yeah because I was pregnant with Dexter and I wanted to focus on that new phase of my life and, and I knew that I didn't have the energy to commit to still being in a band whilst being a mother and a wife. Um, so, yeah, so but then I've just kind of followed my muse and more recently I've been getting back to my love of classical music, which is where my love affair with music started, um, and enjoying the challenge of learning very difficult contemporary pieces and commissioning new pieces um elixir is the only thing that is still going we just released our um third studio album is that right yeah our third studio album like 18 months ago 
gratitude and grief, which was wonderful, maybe two years ago actually. Um, and yeah, so I just and I just I keep on wanting to make music with those people, and I just want to keep on trying to express my views on the world through music. That's how I kind of see the world. So, or how I hear the world more more to the point. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. I've already got kind of three new albums, four new records bumbling, bubbling away in the back room. So yeah, <laughs> keeping busy. <laughs> Before, I think a lot of people took time to rest this year, but it sounds like you've, um, you've just kind of kept pushing through and powering through. Uh, I've rested a lot as well, though, I've got to say. <laughs> I've realised that I've been, I never want to go back to how busy I was. I've realised that and it's been a great gift. Um, and I need to listen to my body more and all that kind of stuff because I've just been pushing, pushing through. Um, yeah, it's been a very stressful few years. So this break has actually been awesome. But, um, yeah, I've certainly kept myself busy. Yeah. That's good. Uh, I, I know this year in adapting to the current situation, you started a, a Patreon and started Zach. Zach Huron's, um, I'm going to mispronounce your husband's no, name. Correct. I apologize. Zach Huron's room. Yeah. That's the one. Um, uh, what was it like adapting to that new experience and, and what have those shows been like? It's pretty strange, I've got to say. Like it is weird. You just have to imagine that the audience is there. And I do feel they're there because, well, they are literally, but um, it takes a little while to get used to. Um, the first one I did felt very odd. I did a live stream for the Melbourne Digital Concert Hall, who are this amazing group that just basically acted very quickly and put on these incredible live stream gigs. So we played at the QPAC Concert Hall. I had about an octet, I think, of musicians. But, you know, we played to an empty concert hall, which was kind of eerie um, and a bit weird. It felt kind of sad, you know, like a home without a family or I don't know a church without a congregation or whatever, you know, it felt really weird. Um, There's something off about it. Yeah, it just felt odd. Um, But then I got home and I got all these messages from people all around the world who'd been watching it, like, you know, someone said, oh, I got up at 2 a.m. in L.A. to watch the concert. It was so nice to hear sounds of home and because this is when, well, people have still been stuck, you know, this is when they were stuck overseas. This was back in, oh, I can't quite remember when it was. Uh, maybe June, I think. And so um, that was an amazing experience and that kind of, I mean, I'd already thought back back in kind of April, I think, I put in an arts grant to the Australia Council, which was a thing called ADAPT, which was like, how can you adapt your current business thing into something that will work in COVID? And I was like, well, a live stream concert series is you know, the only thing I know I can do and, you know, I can make music myself but also luckily in Queensland we've done really well with our um, regulations so I could have friends over to my house to perform with and things like that, whereas my poor mates in Melbourne, you know, they couldn't do that. So, um, So it's been really awesome. It's been good to have something to keep me busy. My husband has basically transformed from, you know, um, being a saxophone teacher and composition teacher into an acoustic engineer and designing and building <laughs> a space, um, you know, turning our three-car three shed into a fully, you know, beautiful-sounding acoustically treated studio. He built it, he painted it, and then now he's worked out how to be an engineer and videographer and do live streaming. So it's been this 
enormous learning curve, um, learning how to do, you know, OBS broadcasts and we, it's, it's been huge. So we've done three and each one's been a huge Herculean effort kind of thing with rehearsing, particularly because I like working with young people and so they've needed a lot of extra rehearsals and whatnot um, leading up to the concert. Um, but it's been beautiful. The last one was really special. It was my sweetest taboo quintet. That was probably the least stressful because – I know that band and I knew it, had, you know what I mean? Like we just played our set and like we did together at the Brisbane Festival, so that felt cool. But it's been awesome. It's been good. I'm not someone who's good at not being busy. I Idle thoughts do not serve me well, so I need to be busy, you know. Um, yeah, so it's been great and it's been giving people very special you know, particularly when we started them in September, that was the peak of still horrible Melbourne lockdown. And so a lot of the people are in Melbourne saying, you know, this is so special to be able to, you know, be part of a live music experience. So for us to be able to offer that to our community has been very special. It is very interesting how musicians have adapted and really kind of embraced technology this year. I think um, there's some people who had already kind of a readily accepted and we're working with tech, but it's now crazy to see how many more have embraced and are working with tech to bring uh, different experiences to yeah. fans. I think uh, I know. Oh, sorry. Problem, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think my big thing from the beginning was, and I was pretty vocal about this. I was like, please stop sharing content for free. Um, because it perpetuates the myth that your art is not worth anything. And that's a dangerous myth that, um, leads to really inaccurate understanding of what we do and, um, you know, uh, yeah. So the, the inequities between classical and non-classical musicians in this time has been extraordinary, you know, because um, most classical musicians, I'm not talking about freelance people, but obviously people who work in, say, the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, for example, in Brisbane, they've all been on you know, full salary, um, you know, and, and good luck to them. That's wonderful. But because they're supported by an, an amazing construct and, a, and an ancient tradition, you know, a century old tradition that respects their music as a legitimate pursuit. Um, whereas, you know, jazz musicians, pop, rock, country, punk, whatever else, acoustic, singer, songwriter, electronic, etc., we rely, we are more just, we are, um, multiple versions of small businesses. Um, we don't have that that major infrastructural support. We don't have government support. We don't have, you know, multi-year funding, etc., to fall back on. Um, and therefore, for a lot of reasons, a lot of those musicians were ineligible for JobKeeper. Myself, I, you know, thankfully I was, which was incredible for my husband and I, and basically kept us alive. Um, but, you know, it's the inequities have been pretty intense. And then on top of that, all these indie artists, it was I think it was a part of self-soothing as well. And, of course, I understand that. But I just kept on saying, please, please, just even if it's a couple of bucks on Patreon, you've got to – I really, really disagree with um, independent artists sharing content for free um, because it's a dangerous model that is not – sustainable um so 
obviously, you know, little things is fine, but not like whole concerts, you know what I mean? It's um, that people were doing whole live stream concerts for a donation and I understand that that I, I just, and most people are good, you know, most people do donate, but I, I decided to put a legitimate fee on it so that it I could pay the musicians and we could do it properly and we've invested a lot into this live stream program that, obviously hasn't returned yet um hopefully it will eventually but you know yeah so I think we kind of shot ourselves in the foot a little bit in the indie scene in Australia with um yeah with oversharing of free content yeah just before you mentioned you um do you enjoy uh, working with young people and young musicians do you think that they uh have the same maybe not respect I don't mean to call out um, young musicians more do you think that they hold the same value to art or to music that we uh people who have come up paying for it have if that makes sense i might not have asked it correctly but um no you have asked it perfectly um unfortunately i don't know but probably not because when i was growing up i had to save up money to buy records I'd go into the record shop, I'd buy the record, I'd take it home, I'd listen to it. It was active listening. You had to wait until you got to the end of the turntable and then turn it over. <laughs> you know, listening was a really, listening was a was an act of listening, you know, whereas now it's so easy and I do it, of course, too. You know, I buy most music now digitally. Um, whenever I'm at a gig, I always buy the album because you know I know that's a way that I can tangibly support that artist um and often I'll buy the album then I'll get it digitally anyway because you know I only listen to cds in my car um so or vinyl which I which I love doing is a kind of sit down listening experience but yeah it's um I think that, that, you know there's a whole generation that thinks that music is just this free thing on the internet because it is. And, you know, YouTube is the absolute worst perpetrator of, of, yes. of um, you, know, you, you get nothing. Spotify is a pretty horrible, you know, thing, but it is what it is. And there is some monetization, at least it's better than none, which YouTube basically is. Um, but yeah, anything, that's why I think, yeah, things like Patreon and a crowdfunding have, but then, yeah. So, but then the flip side is, Patreon and crowdfunding are this amazing tangible way that you can support artists that you believe in. So it's a whole new world. I mean, I've always embraced the digital revolution. I've never been anti-streaming or anti-internet or anti-anything because it's this incredible conduit that you can contact your core peeps through, which is amazing. Um, But I've also never expected something for nothing. So I've never downloaded anything illegally. I never will. I always, you know, ethically pay for, I don't expect a coffee for free, so I don't expect a song for free. Um, so, you know, we just got to re-educate that, that generation. It's not their fault. It's the people that stuffed it up. You know, the record companies were, were too greedy and didn't, you know, get jump on board when they should have. And now streaming's pretty much back up to where, physical sales are I believe um in terms of equity of revenue um but yeah it's been a long journey I mean when I started albums were 30 bucks (laughs) you know (laughs) 
Or maybe twenty four ninety five if they're on special, and that's just what you paid for a record. And that was that was thirty years ago. That's how much I was paying. And albums still cost a lot to make if you're paying your musicians properly and paying for a studio and paying for artwork design and all the things. Um, yeah, they, they so yeah, it's a tricky tricky thing. Albums used to make money; they really don't anymore. They're really just a vehicle for touring, essentially. Of course, they're an incredible, important self-expression, but I never make an album thinking that it will ever recoup its costs. It's an investment in live touring, essentially. It really should be looked at as possibly um, streaming being what the new radio is, and then if you like what you hear on streaming, you've only got a limited kind of time to listen to it and then go and purchase it if you actually really like it. But um, that's... Yeah. yeah, I don't listen, I don't do streaming, so it's not how I choose to listen to music, but I know it is how most people do, So, and that's fine. I mean, as long as they're paying something for something, it's better than nothing. So, yeah, and for me, nothing will ever take away from the magic of a live concert. We've all realised this year how much we've desperately missed that construct, so... Hopefully, and also we're going to be in, I hope, this safe bubble of I was or at least a trans-Tasman bubble for a long time. Um, so hopefully it will be a chance to really get out and celebrate and support local talent definitely. from a live point of view. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, I believe I was going to ask how, how you're feeling in regards to returning to live shows. I think you have a few in, in Queensland in the next I, month. Yeah. Actually, no, I just finished a nine-date tour. So, yeah, no, it's all good. Queensland, we were – I'm so proud of how our premier handled stuff. Um, You know, she was – you know, a lot of people were very angry saying open up the borders and blah, blah, blah. The borders did open on Tuesday. So thankfully people can be with their loved ones for Christmas, which is, of course, so special and important. But she held her guard for a long time and, you know, shut the borders in very much so to, um, you know, I had to self, I had to hotel quarantine coming back from Melbourne for two weeks. And, um, you know, I'm glad I did because I helped stop the spread of this thing so um but yeah because of that we've been able we are actually now back to 100 percent capacity in our theaters and cinemas where we're very very lucky it still has to be seated it's not back to kind of you know there's still social distancing so you can't have a mosh pit but um we're back i mean theaters seating is pretty much my main audience anyway so for me i'm back to functioning capacity um here which is amazing so yeah i just finished a nine date tour all of which was sold out the first six were in the covid capacity which i think was 25 percent, and then it moved up to 50 percent halfway through and then the last show was actually 100 percent. so capacity yeah beautiful that's great yeah Last week you took part in the Helen Reddy tribute, I Am Woman, at the ARIA Awards. Yeah. I know previously you've you've always been a big champion of women musicians and, and women in general. What was yeah. the experience like performing, even though virtually, and um and seeing that varied but incredible lineup of women on the stage? 
Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, I really wanted to be there and unfortunately, obviously, only singers based in Sydney could be in the room, which is why myself and a bunch of other amazing mates, um, you know, like Missy Higgins and uh, um, oh, I'm just trying to think of all the people that were on the board. I remember seeing Missy and Kate Miller-Heike and um, Dami Im and, I, yeah, you know, a bunch of us who sent in videos. Um it was a wonderful moment of solidarity. I mean, 47 years ago, Helen Reddy became the first Australian songwriter to win a Grammy. So she was the first Aussie to win a Grammy as a songwriter and she beat, I'm pretty sure it was like Roberta Flack, Aretha Franklin, you know, Barbara Streisand and, I don't know, Diana Ross or something crazy like that, like a crazy selection of amazing women. Um, and she was an Aussie winning a Grammy, which had never happened before. Um, well, actually, the first Australian to win a Grammy was Dame John Sutherland, another woman, um, the decade before for best operatic performance, but the first songwriter, which is, you know, the real kind of, I guess, there's a legitimacy that comes to an award that's attached to songwriting. Um, and she thanked God and said, I think she would be very proud. Now, this was the, like, Nixon-Reagan era of bloody America it was super super um conservative Christian America so that would have been <laughs> that would that's a pretty wild thing to say yeah. in 1973 <laughs> um and she was a single mum who left an abusive relationship and moved to New York with a two-year-old daughter or three-year-old daughter you know such an inspiring story and that song just became such an amazing anthem for women around the world and um I was thrilled to be a part of it and yeah, um, you know, she was just a serious badass and that song is such a beautiful song and it's funny because people think it's angry but it's it's not at all. It's a very gentle, when it came out, people thought it was angry, like man-hating, but it's really, really not at all. Um, um, yeah, yeah, I never quite understood that. When you actually listen to the lyrics, it is just quite a, um, uh, like a self-empowerment thing more than an anger thing, but... It's not a I don't like you guys, you know, or I want to be one of you guys. It's just I'm a woman and here I am and, you know, yeah, I'm ready to be strong and hold my power and that's that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but in the 70s that was still a pretty revolutionary thing, you know, that was the second wave feminist era and, um, you know, you got to remember that until 19, oh, what was it, 60, I can't remember, but... Uh, you know, it wasn't until the late 70s that women were allowed to be married and have a job in Australia. Um, it, it, you know, like if you worked for government or a school or any sort of official job, like a teacher or, you know, something like that. So that's, you know, that's only 40 years ago. That's crazy Yeah, that we've come that far in that time, really. It just, yeah, yeah it seems crazy that that was even still going on at that time, but that is a... Yeah. I mean, I understand the reasoning behind it. Like if you look at the evolution, you know, um, that the traditional thing was the man worked and the mother was the caregiver at home. So, you know, and that worked for many people and it still works for people and there's absolute, and it's a beautiful thing and that, that, that I respect. But um, the fact that there was no choice for that to not be the only option yeah. is pretty scary. No, that's very fair. Thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> The other thing with the Aries was that you were nominated yourself for The Sweetest Taboo. Now, mm. 
for yourself, I guess, uh, as we mentioned before, George started in, in 96. So for over 20 years, um, and I know I think George's first aria was the early 2000s, um, 2001. 2002, 2002, damn it. Um, 2002, yeah. But is it nice to still be getting recognition from those peers and, and the industry 20 years, well, 18, but 20 years on? Yeah. No, it's incredible. It's amazing. I mean, that was actually my 26th ARIA nomination, um, which is wild, and I've won five. And so I won one with George and then I've won four on my own since then with different projects. Um, um yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the, just getting nominated is the prize, really. I certainly had no illusions that I would win, particularly up against bloody Paul Kelly. <laughs> Who's going to beat Australian's Bob Dylan? Fat chance. Um, and I was very, very happy to lose to him because he's, you know, he's Paul Kelly. Um, so, but just being nominated is amazing, and um, that that your work still. The main thing as a musician is you just want your notes to mean something to somebody. That's why you make, I mean, I have to make music as my, that's how I process my feelings and, you know, everything. Um, But the fact that it ends up meaning something to somebody else is beautiful and that's why we do it, you know, that's why we make music and I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Um, do all the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Before um, we move on to your playlist, I just quickly, I feel like I've been remiss to, to ask um, about Sally the Sloth. And oh, Sally, wasn't she beautiful? Absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> Uh, for those listening who weren't aware, you were on the Masked Singer uh, earlier this year. What was the what was that whole experience like? Because I imagine that's like something you've never. I could be wrong, but like something you've never done before. You are, you are very correct. I've always been very anti reality TV shows involved with music. So I remember, uh, oh, actually, yeah, about twenty years ago, all I was very thrilled that all these quite a few ladies picked my songs to sing on Australian Idol. I think it was Casey Donovan and a few, and Casey's amazing, you know, and she did such a bloody amazing job. And they said, oh, would you like to come in and um, talk? Because I think in those days they all lived in the one house as well. Yeah. It was full quality TV vibes. And they said, oh, would you like to come and talk to them? And I was like, sure, I'd love that, you know. So we went out to 
the place. It was some weird McMansion place in Sydney and I went in and spoke to them and basically everything I said, none of it could go to air because I was like, whatever you can do, get out of this situation. <laughs> you can get a shit record deal. You'll have no creative control. You'll be signed up for some five-album, <laughs> five you know, shit-ass thing where you won't have any you just won't be able to control what you do and, um, you know, like, yeah, so everything I said couldn't go to air. And I remember seeing Matt Corby, I think, there and I was like, dude, what are you doing here? You sh- you just, this is not right for, you know, and obviously he didn't win and there have, some people have come through that system and made amazing careers, obviously Guy Sebastian, who's an absolutely incredible musician, Jessica Malboy, Casey Donovan, um, um vera blue who i think was on there apparently i think she was on idol or one of those shows but she changed her name to vera blue um you know matt corby um that some people have managed to you know really create a credible indie career and then others have had really credible commercial careers oh ricky lee there's another one but um you know most people are kind of you know, chewed up and spat out and you forgot about, I don't even know who's won the last few years of those things. Um, And I think most people sadly don't know, which is sad. So, yeah, so I've always been really not into those shows because it's essentially um, a karaoke show, you know, and the best, you know, there's there's not much room for originality or, or stuff like that. I mean, you know, imagine if someone like Tom Waits or Bjork went on a show like that. There's no way the chair would turn around or whatever. I would <laughs> so, I would definitely watch that show though if that was on yeah. TV. <laughs> but um but then having said that, you know, that was me being a bit of a purist snob and I've had mates of mine go on the voice who are, you know, incredible musicians and it's helped launch their career and more people know them. So it's like, well, you know, that's good. And um, I still don't watch them, but when I saw the mask sing it, they actually asked me to do it last year and I was like, this is the most bonkers show. It's so silly and so fun and obviously isn't a real competition. Like it's not, it's just silly escapist family fun and I couldn't do it last year but you know when I saw that people that I admire like Kate Sobrano and people like that were on it I was like well that's you know that's really cool um and to be honest I just was like you know what I want to do this show because it'll just be fun and I've had four years of just being such a grown-up writing board reports and you know talking about KPIs and crap like that I was like I just want to do that because it'll just be really kind of pointless fun you know like it doesn't have to mean anything it just means dressing up as this silly costume and and singing tunes and I had a ball and honestly it saved my sanity because I had nothing on the horizon with COVID whereas I did have this TV show to look forward to and it kept me busy for a few weeks and I'm very, very grateful for the experience and um, I loved Sally the Sloth. And then um, I loved the whole experience. The crew were lovely. I got to sing tunes by people I love like Lizzo and Whitney and I had fun trying to disguise my voice. It was the weirdest thing I'll ever do, I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> maybe not, never say never. I loved it. It was great fun. I was going to say it did seem like uh, – 
there were parts where you could tell it was Katie Noonan and then there were parts where it seemed like you were trying to disguise or go under the radar as um, possibly someone else. Oh, no, I definitely was, yeah. I think we all were to a bit, whereas, you know, um, it was so obvious that Kate was Kate. I was like, how can they not know that this is Mikey? But, you know, I'm a singer so and I knew it was Eddie Perfect from the word go and I knew it was Isaiah and I knew most of the voices that were professional singers. I knew their sound. So, But we all were trying to kind of disguise it a bit. Like I was singing with a full American accent pretty much, which I never do. I kind of sang it in Lizzo's, you know, accent. Um, so... Yeah. Oh, it was so fun and um, such a credit to the team. You know, it's such a big team who put that show together, choreographers, designers, you know, the whole shebang. And Ursula is hilarious. I was so glad she was on there because she was equally as hilarious as Lindsay Lohan, but she was deliberately hilarious. I think the the best one was, uh, (laughs) what was the the, the, uh, seven, the seven uh, sunrise cash cow was one of her guesses. I know. Yeah, that was great. I liked that. Um, but all the things she managed to somehow turn um, the dragon, was it the uh, the frilled neck into some sort of lesbian thing somehow. She kept on talking about flaps and, you know, <laughs> she, the amount of stuff that they got to say on in primetime family television hour, I was pretty amazed by. And also, you know, the fact that Kate, when they kept on showing the pictures of the beards and Tasmania, I was like, oh, my God, Map of Tassie, you know, Kate wrote that song, I'm Growing a Beard Downstairs for Christmas. And she said that when the, when the clues came through and I was like, this is amazing. This is a sentence that I never thought I'd hear on primetime channel 10 <laughs> television. <laughs> it was great. Um, yeah, it was, you know. And this year, I, you know, we needed escapist just stupid fun. That was just fun for the sake of fun. Because uh, every time you do it's just depressing, uh, you know, stuff. So, yeah, no, it was awesome. I loved it. Katie, would you be happy to talk about your playlist? Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was my playlist? You're going to have to remind me. <laughs> it's quite an eclectic playlist that you have sent through and it's covering, yeah. just from having a quick look at it, it's covering classical, it's got electro, some jazz, some uh, R&B, some singer-songwriter. Um, yeah. Have you always had such a varied music taste? I have, yeah. I guess that comes back to your first question, which is like, you know, 21, this would be my 21st album and, you know, I do have a voracious appetite for all sorts of music. Other than death metal, mind you, my 15-year-old is really introducing me to some really interesting <laughs> prog. I'm currently getting into um, Animals as Leaders. I don't know if you've checked them out, but they're really cool. And Periphery, these kind of, you know, um, they're a bit like – they're kind of like what Tool were to me 20 years ago, okay. like interesting, uh, you know, kind of complicated, interesting um, music. Um, yeah, no, I just love all sorts of music, but my first love is classical, which is kind of why I put some classical pieces on there. Um, did you want me to talk to those ones first, it, maybe? It's 100%, yeah, up to you, whichever ones you'd like to talk about. 
Yeah, I think I remember that I mentioned winter, which is the um, – the, so there are four seasons by Vivaldi, Antonio Vivaldi, who's one of my favourite Baroque composers, and I distinctly remember listening to this on headphones as a little kid, you know, to and from school and in high school. So I loved classical music as much as I loved kind of, you know, Bross and Kylie Minogue and, you know, Vice House and all that stuff in the, and AHA in the 80s. Um, I think I put in Bistou by Mia by J.S. Bach. Yeah. Yep, which is a, um, a beautiful aria, basically means Bistou by Mia mit Freuden. I think it's be with me, be near me, God, kind of thing as I go through a tough patch kind of thing. Um and that was one of the first arias that I remember learning in maybe grade 10 or 11 when I was starting to take singing a little bit more seriously. Um, and what other classical stuff did I put in there? Was there another one? Um, Around... There's Eliza's aria. Oh, yeah. And then Eliza's aria, which is by Elena Katz-Channon, who's an Australian composer. And this for me feels like classical music meets pop music because it's super catchy and super fun and short and, you know, all the things that pop music is, but it is extremely virtuosic classical music. And I actually, that was one of my last gigs this year was performing um, the Wild Swan Suite with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra in the Meyer Music Bowl in Melbourne. And I got to work with a, um, beautiful company, a dance company of all young people with living with Down syndrome, and we made this beautiful work together, and it was very, very, very special. So I kind of mentioned that because if people want a little portal into classical world, I think Eliza's aria would be a nice way to enter because it's um it's a very it's it's really beautiful and easy to listen to, but it is legitimate, awesome classical music. So it's kind of a nice entry portal into that world. Um, but, I mean, I think Vivaldi's The Four Seasons is one of the most perfect pieces of music ever written. And winter, for me particularly, is very dramatic. And, you know, I just shut my eyes and can imagine. Oh, it, you can just see it. It's such beautiful writing. So, yeah. I think classical sometimes... Um, unless you do study music or um, I guess brought up or grow up with classical music, it can be difficult to, um, to get into. So it's definitely worth, yeah. um, uh, I had, did have a bit of a listen and it is uh, like a, almost yeah. like a gateway drug into to classical. It's um, yeah. yeah. And the problem with classical music is that most classical, like it's just such an elitist snobby world. Like they, it, it feels like this secret grown up club that only rich, wealthy, smart people can get into, and that's just bullshit. <laughs> Classical music was, was always the peop- the music of the people, um, and it's, I wish it was more that now. It's just that we largely just play music from the from you know Judeo Christian kind of white European <laughs> composers. Um, and which is, you know, a lot of that music is beautiful, but there's so much interesting stuff being written now. It would be great if classical music sounded a bit more like who we are now. Um, but it's a, all the classical musicians are beautiful. They're not, you know, it, they're not the, it's just the, tr- the institution creates this feeling of, of elitism, but, um, it's not real, you know, it's bullshit. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, some of the other tracks that you had on here 
Um, there's a bit of uh, going back to talking about going out and saving up your yeah, um, pocket money and, and buying CDs or vinyls. You've got some really good, uh, some great 90s tracks here. We've got uh, Björk, yeah. Jeff Buckley, um, Portishead. What is it about mm. these songs? Do they kind of take you back to that time in, in the early to mid 90s? Yeah, that was when I was just kind of discovering the magic of there was something in the waters in the mid to late 90s. I mean, I guess it was my age as well, but that's when I was just blown. My mind was blown by, you know, OK Computer by Radiohead, um, Debut and Post by Björk. I think I probably picked Hyper Ballad, which, (laughs) you know, when I heard that song, I was just like, who the hell is this woman? She's amazing. She's like this beautiful crazy, awesome, you know, Scandinavian um, alien princess, amazing person. You know, I just thought she was incredible and so herself, you know. she's No one sounds like Björk. Um, there have been lots of imitators but no one sounds like her. Jeff Buckley was the same. That album Grace is an absolute masterpiece. I think I picked Last Goodbye, which is just a killer, incredible song. Um, yeah, I'm surprised I didn't put Paranoid Android actually, but that would be another one that I put on there from Radiohead, from OK Computer. And then uh, Portishead, um, the record Dummy, which I think came out when I was in grade 12, 1994. Uh, but I think I discovered it more the next year, like first year uni, you know, first share house, first kind of share house parties, and we'd be cranking that album and, you know, um, sticking candles into wine bottles and <laughs> all the classic sitting on milk crates thinking we were living the fucking, the life we were. The, it was the magic. Bohemian lifestyle um, at that age. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yep. Scrang- scrounging to eat to make food, but you'd always have money to go and buy some shit bottle of wine and a, an album of someone and just, yeah, they were amazing days and that's when I started my band George and so those albums were big influences on me sonically as well for the kind of record that I wanted to make um, as, you know, more as a producer person. So, yeah, I think the first tune on my list I said was Mirrorball by Elbow. Yeah. And Elbow are basically... I'm obsessed with them. They are incredible. That album, The Seldom Seen Kid, is such a great album and Mirrorball is such a great song Um, and it has this beautiful lyric in it. We took the town to town last night. We kissed like we invented it and now I know what every step is for, to lead me to your door. It's like, oh, he's such a romantic. <laughs> what a sweetie. He's since broken up with that woman and they made the breakup record, which was also great but not quite as joyous and uplifting. Um, but, yeah, Seldom Seen Kid, masterpiece record. It also has another classic lyric because they're from, I can't remember the name of the town, but like northern England they've got pretty strong accents. He says, um, holy cow, I love your eyes. Holy cow, I love your eyes. Um, just so kind of sincere, beautiful um, lyrics of a man in love. It's a great record. Yeah, It's a very difficult sentence to um, sing sincerely and actually get that across so he does it quite he well. Does, he does. Yeah, because he just means it. I remember I saw them play and they're one of the best bands I've ever seen live and I was so starstruck meeting Gus Gar- Guy Garvey. 
I basically just made a total fool of myself. And then he was like, it's all right. It's, it's all good. I just need to get a bit more drunk. Come on, let's go. And we went out and had many drinks together and it was a really fun night. Um, but, yeah, beautiful band. What's next on my list? You'll have to prompt me because I can't remember. What have we got? Um, we've got some Steve, uh, there was Imogen Heap and Stevie Wonder, so a bit of pop, a little bit of oh, R&B. yeah. Imogen Heap, well, this is not really R&B. This Imogen Heap is actually more her rock era. This was a record called I Megaphone and this was a song called Come Here Boy which was produced by Dave Stewart from the from the Eurythmics who are a band that I, uh, you know, admired deeply. And, um, yeah, the, I just, this record was really a great influence for me. I loved this album. She then went on to do Fru Fru and the more electronic R&B stuff. But in this era, she was more like a rock chick, actually. Um, songs in the Key of Life, I presume I probably picked Loves in Me of Love today. <laughs> you know your, you know your picks very well, yeah. Tunes, yeah, that's just a, you know, it's such a perfect song. Um and actually, I remember I did actually do a version of this on Instagram way back in March when the COVID shit show was, or maybe it was, yeah, late March, that day when all those, there were like 30,000 people at Bondi Beach after everyone had said, you know, social distancing and everyone was ignoring it. And I was like, well, actually, self-isolation is an act of love for your grandma and your husband and your children and like just everyone. So just, you know. Love's in need of love today. Let's just love each other a bit more by taking social <laughs> distancing and self-isolation more seriously. But, um, yeah, Stevie's, um, that album is just a masterpiece, Songs in the Key of Life. It's just every tune is killer. It's um, a great record. Yeah. Yeah. You've also included uh, some great singer-songwriters here on the playlist, including um, Nick Drake, George Harrison and um, Tim Finn or... Believe a split end track. Oh, yay. Well, they're three pretty amazing men. Holy moly. So, Neil Finn, I Hope I Never, is just, I think, maybe one of the most perfect pop songs ever, ever written. Um, yeah. I mean, if you haven't heard that song, please, please go and listen to it. It's, it's a masterpiece. Nick Drake I discovered when I was starting Elixir. I actually discovered him via our first sax player's dad and then I also discovered him when I think it was, what's his name, um, the guy from the Style Council, Paul Weller mentioned him in an interview and I was like, oh, I'm going to go check him out. Um, Nick Drake is a very, very beautiful folk artist from Britain who actually accidentally died of an overdose of antidepressants in the late 70s, which is very sad, but he made three amazing records and River Man um, is just one of my favourite, favourite, favourite tunes. And then I was trying to think of one Beatles song and it was very difficult, but Abbey Road is my, you know, number one Beatles record. So... Um, I kind of couldn't go past something because that's track one on side B, like you turn over the record and it starts off with that. It's just perfect. And that guitar solo is maybe one of the best guitar solos ever, you know. It's so relaxed and beautiful and, yeah, yeah. It is um, It is one of the uh, – well, 
all of Abbey Road is a great record, but it is one of the highlights, um, that track. Well, I was going to pick Golden Slumbers, actually, because I love that song so much. But then the way that John sings, or is it Paul? I'm not quite sure who's singing it in the chorus. It's a bit, I don't really like the way he sings it. Like, I love the verse. Once there was a way to get back home. Once there was a way to get back home. You know, sleep pretty darling, do not cry. So beautiful. And then the chorus, he kind of does this weird bluesy thing that I don't, but I love the melody. But um, you can't, it's hard to pick those tunes because they're all part of that mega medley. So they don't really properly finish or, start because they go into another bit but um yeah what else was on my list i'm fascinated to remember (laughs) the only thing we haven't uh was a flower is a lovesome thing uh Fitzgerald. oh and maybe did i maybe put a coltrane tune on there too oh sorry yeah resolution Yeah, so I thought I wanted to reference my jazz stuff a little. John Coltrane was kind of a revolutionary um, lesson for me, just following his career, particularly from the kind of mid-60s onwards when his music really took on a very spiritual um, element and resolution is one of my favourite pieces of his and I remember transcribing it for one of my exams at uni. Um, and then Billy Strayhorn, you know, Duke Ellington obviously is the master of jazz, uh, but Billy Strayhorn was one of his protégés who wrote incredibly beautiful songs and he wrote Lush Life, which is, you know, a very, very sad song, you know, because he was a homosexual African-American man in the 40s in America, which was, you know, that was a double whammy. Um, And Lush Life was this incredible song he wrote. But then this one, A Flower is a Lovesome Thing, is just such a gorgeous tune and there's a beautiful version. I think it's on Ella at Duke's Place, I think it's called, that record. And um, Ella's basically my ultimate jazz hero, so... I thought I'd put in a little bit of that. But, yeah, it is quite an eclectic mix <laughs> of, of people. Yeah. It is a um, a very impressive mix. I feel like you've picked some great well-known tracks and then um, some great deep cuts as well. So so thank you for the um, the great playlist. Katie, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I, I really do appreciate your time being here. My pleasure, Simon. No worries. And um, take care. Bye. that's our show. A massive thank you to Katie Noonan for her time this week. The Sweetest Taboo is out now on ABC Music. If you'd like to buy the record in a physical format, we've included a link to Katie's store in the show notes. We also want to thank Jess at Collected PR for helping out with today's interview. You can find a link to our Spotify playlist in the show notes, where you'll be able to listen to all of Katie's song choices. If you like this show, please subscribe wherever you get your pods and stay up to date when new episodes are released. We release new shows each Thursday morning with guest playlists streaming on Spotify at the same time. You can follow the playlist profile on Spotify and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, cheers. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 